Muammar Gaddafi proposed a gold dinar, a gold-backed currency in 2009. And then in 2011, he was stabbed in literally in his asshole. Yeah, so this is Illegitimate Scholar Live. Uh, Daniel is demanding to see Brad. I'm sorry, dude. You're <laughs> okay. Um, I, I sometimes get too distracted by the comments, which is something I got to work on, but that's okay. Especially at the beginning. Um, all right. This is illegitimate scholar live. It's uh, July 20th, 2023. And we're going to be going over the news. I have with me, Brad Pierce from the wayward rambler is the name of your Rabbler. Staff, right? People get that wrong a lot. Like rabbler, like, you know, rabble, rabble, rabble when the public's mad. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah. Like, is that from South Park? Well, South Park uses it extensively, but the term, like, calling the masses the rabble yeah. dates back to, like, the Middle Ages. Right, right. I totally, like, I, I'm aware of that part, but do you, like, are you doing it because of South Park, though? Yeah, so the idea, that is where it came from. So what actually happened is that I used to have a Facebook group uh, to discuss, you know, like, libertarian-type things, etc., and it didn't have a name that uh, made a good denonym for the user. So they kept calling it Brad Group. And so they decided that it needed a denonym and they came up with Rabblers. So I changed it to the Pierce Home for Wayward Rabblers. Um, and then that's Love where that. I ended up getting the name that I used for the Substack from. Okay, fantastic. All right. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I got illegitimate scholar from the fact that nobody in academia liked me. Um, and I liked that. So, all right. <laughs> We're going to get started today. Um, we're going to go over, I have one article. I made these in a weird order because like Brad has two articles that are his articles that we're going to talk about, or really, I'm just going to let him talk about. Um, but first, I'm going to start with this weird article that I read that like, you know, th th this this is one I'm going to have to be careful what I say on because it's it, it sucks. Um, okay, so I'm going to share my screen here. All right. Great, Craig. That sounds good. Uh, Craig, this is the first week that I have the stream up with my, um, it's the gigabit internet. So I have the fiber now. So I have really high upload speeds and I'm, uh, I'm in with a, uh, with an ethernet cable. So it should be, it should be good. If there's any picture or, uh, audio qualities, let me know because that we're supposed to have all of those solved. And if that's not solved, I have to like, I'm gonna have to do something. Um, but yeah, welcome Craig. Welcome Daniel, and uh, there's a few other people here, so welcome whoever that is. Uh, please like this, by the way, if you can. Um, if you can. Yeah, you can. So please do that. I would appreciate it. Um, okay. Surrogate claims gay dads told her to terminate pregnancy at 24 weeks on finding out she had aggressive cancer and barred her from having baby prematurely or putting it up for adoption because they didn't want their DNA out there. So this woman is 37 uh, in California. She was a surrogate for a, uh, a, a homosexual couple and she was having their kid. And then she, she gets cancer um, at 22 weeks into her pregnancy. So uh, the disease, like it was not like it says here um, that, how they were going to do it was to have her be induced at 34 weeks. Apparently that was cool with everybody, but that didn't work out. So the cancer was worse. And like what eventually happens is because of this contract, I guess, and the way that surrogacy works is that this woman was uh, like, they were trying to get her to abort the child. And they were um, if like 
they didn't want it. So, okay. So Pearson told DailyMail.com of the distress she felt after the prospective fathers allegedly threatened everyone they could with a lawsuit, including Pearson, her agency, and Sutter Health. So this woman has bad cancer. And uh, this, the unnamed gay couple, and I'm using the, that, that's what they wrote here. The unnamed gay couple wanted the baby immediately terminated and erased. And those are in quotes, um, as they believed it had no chance at life. Um, so they didn't want the baby to be born before 34 weeks. Um, and they didn't want their DNA out there. Again, DNA out there is a quote. So, I mean, this is insane to me that like, you know, there's so much stuff about abortion and pro-life arguments where they're talking about women having rights over their own body. And then there's this situation where a woman like is being like, people are trying to use the legal system to force her to do something with her body. Um, and like, I, I, I just, I, I almost wish I hadn't started with this cause it just makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say firstly, I'm glad you didn't have a hot take on this one or whatever. Cause this is just a really sad situation overall yeah. and there's not any great solution to it. Um, I mean, and yeah, there's a lot of different issues here, but overall there's not any, any obvious answer, especially when you're dealing with, you know, the pre-existing contract, different values people hold. I would just say when I was in college, I took this writing class where that was taught by this really insufferable grad student and his specific area of study was the rhetoric of sperm and egg donations and oh, like God. the idea that uh, women are kind of manipulated into this. I mean, part of the, the part that was reasonable was that these types of artificial pregnancies are really, really expensive and you know, women are kind of manipulated into spending enormous or couples are manipulated into spending an enormous amount of money. But what was really funny is the part that he was fascinated with is the fact that the um, the couple paying the surrogate is always of a higher economic status than the woman doing the surrogacy. And it's like, that's not even interesting. Do you expect like rich ladies to be surrogates for like women living in trailer parks? Like, yeah, you know, anything I, about how society works. Right. But it, I, I think it is like important to point out that, I mean, that there is almost like an exploitative situation. It also points out that like people are doing surrogacy because of socioeconomic reasons, not for any other reason, which should be obvious. But I think when it's pointed out like that, it's like it's it's it makes it really obvious and then it's like oh god i just hate the idea of like uh, like uh, abortion being like i don't i don't take a hard stance on abortion in either direction um i tend to be more pro-life but libertarian i just don't really want the government involved in it but you know, I, I see both sides of this argument, but in, in this particular case, I, I see this and it's like I abortion is so accepted that they can compel her to get the abortion because they have like a written contract. I, I think that that's but it's no, just they couldn't terrifying. compel her. They couldn't compel her to do it. The, ba the baby ended up dying after birth. So like the kid wasn't viable and she did carry it to term. That's what the article says lower down. Right. <laughs> uh, one of the things that they say, though, is. Um, it uh where is it there's the apparently they were able they had a legal right over the child even though it it was born to her so they were able to prevent uh life-saving care that that potentially would have saved its life yeah this is a mess you know what i would say about this is that um 
especially something that people on the left do a whole lot where they come up with just absolutely ridiculous hypothetical situations, which I mean, this is basically, it really happened, but it would be a ridiculous hypothetical situation. And for something this complex, you're never going to have a perfect solution to it. And you can't really write any sort of blanket legislation that covers situations this complicated. So it's kind of something that does just end up getting played out on an individual basis. And there was not any great ending to this functionally a contractual dispute involving a human life so it it is sad i don't think we can really set any further policies to like prevent this from happening in the future or something because it's such an unusual situation to arise yeah i i I think the other point about this is that in situations like this that are so extreme that they really point to like they're extreme in a certain direction but based on the way that they work out it shows what ultimately the the greater values of the society are. So the, the fact that who was able to win out were the wealthier was the wealthier gay couple. Um, they were the ones who were able to get what they wanted, which in this case was that this baby would not be alive. And I, I really don't like that. Um, I think that's awful because it's, it's a human life. And, and even though, yes, they have a contractual obligation to it, or they, they have a contractual right to it. Um, I don't, I think that the, the fact that that could ever supersede, uh, the mother who also has her own DNA in it, uh, unless it was with a, a sperm or an egg donor, but regardless, she's carrying it in her body. You know, it's just, it's rough. It's really rough. Um, yeah, I believe yes. when they call it a surrogate, it would be like with a donor egg that wasn't hers. But I guess I don't know that for sure. I, I could be either one, I, I think. Because um, surrogate just implies that they're the ones who who is carrying the child. So, yeah. So Craig says, if they don't want their DNA out there, why not adopt? There are so many kids that would love a family. Yeah, I, I think that they didn't want their DNA to just like their, their DNA. They didn't want this child that had their genetic structure to be out in the world away from them, but existing with their DNA, which I guess I kind of get, but ultimately I don't think that's a good reason to allow a child to die. I mean, I understand Um, both positions here. It's just a very unfortunate situation. I, I, it's, I understand both positions, but I side with the woman in general. Oh Um, yeah. I am more on the woman's side for sure. Yeah. Um, and then Dan (laughs) says, uh, contractual dispute involving human life is a very accurate and telling description. And yeah, I agree. That is, that is ultimately, I think that's the best description when it's boiled down to its most basic. Um, Yeah. So let's move on from this. Um, That sucks. And let's go to one of your articles. Um, And if you just want to, you tell me what to do this. I I went into this one a little bit and I I think I I generally agree with you. So do you want to talk about this or do you want me to read what I had picked out? Well, um, I would assume that most people that would listen to something like this are familiar with the Missouri versus Biden decision by now, Um, but it's still uh, an important topic. I would just give, um, before you go into it, the update that uh, a three-judge panel from the Fifth Circuit Court did grant the government's motion of a stay on this um, a few days ago, which didn't get a lot of notice. So until August 10th, the government can influence social media companies again. However, apparently that is their standard practice when they expedite a trial and is not representative of their view on the merits of the case or whatever. Mm, So for the time being, the, the 
government's uh, motion was temporarily granted. And then there's another hearing on August 10th. Okay. Okay. So this started, um, this is, oh, okay. So the title of the article, I should say, is the Missouri versus Biden injunction is a ra- rare win for freedom. And uh, yeah, it would be very rare. Um, but the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana sued the Biden administration, alleging that they had unlawfully pressured social media companies to pressure to censor legal speech. And of course, this this is related to like the um, the Hunter Biden stuff and how they shut it down and how the intelligence communities were in contact with social media sites. Right. That's a relatively minor component of it. It has a lot more to do with, well, that's, I mean, that is one component of it. That's one of the plaintiffs that they got. It has a lot more to do with COVID censorship and other than just other censorship they were doing. Okay. Okay, cool. Do you want to expand on this? Well, basically, you know, this, a uh, lawsuit was brought forward over a year ago and there had been other ones that were shut down. But in this one last summer, this judge who they, they kind of shopped for this judge, as you would call it, mm. because he was known to be good on this sort of thing. He did grant them discovery because in all the other cases, they said, well, you can't prove the government influenced them. And they're like, well, that's because you're not letting us do discovery. So you're not giving us a chance to get the information to show that. So then once they did the discovery, including with the Twitter files coming out, which gave them a lot of information about what documents to request, you know, including like specific communications and stuff like that, they were able to robustly show that, you know, the government had done this very extensively and they got a lot of uh, a lot of different instances on a wide variety of things. And the judge seemed outright angry that the Biden administration even put in its, uh, you know, its motion for a stay of his injunction. But it's hard to imagine that this doesn't go through because clearly they're intending to take it to the Supreme Court if necessary. And it is basically impossible to imagine that the current Supreme Court wouldn't at least broadly uphold this, especially because it's already the law. Like this wouldn't necessarily set any sort of new precedent. It would just uphold existing law. Yeah, it would just actually enforce it. But the Department of Justice, I don't think has any real interest in enforcing these types of things because they're one of the people, well, maybe not them directly, but associated three letter agencies are the ones who are doing it. Right. Oh, everyone was doing it. It was a big yeah. list of people that uh, were included in this injunction. And it wasn't even like it was like it. So my understanding was that it was Democrats and Republicans who were doing this, but it happened to be more Democrats kind of in line with like their connections at at places. In well, these the judge right? said that the pattern here was of conservative perspectives being censored, but that right, people right. of any political views should be concerned about this. But yeah. uh, the majority of these people are career government employees that are ostensibly not partisan political positions, but we know how that works in practice. Right, right. But the uh, the people at the um, at the social media companies, the tech companies, those people were like, like there was Republicans and Democrats. There just happens to be way more Democrats amongst them. So oh, they were, yeah, no, the was, social yeah. media side of this, I think they're primarily almost all liberals. And then the um, attorney generals that brought the lawsuit are definitely Republicans. One right. of them is actually a, a United States senator now, but he was Missouri attorney general when this lawsuit was started. Okay. Well, I would have made him a senator too. Um, okay. Do you want to say any more about this? Oh, I mean... 
Unless, not, I mean, particularly unless you had any questions, but I definitely think this is one of the more important things that is going on right now. Because yeah, we I are discovering ever more just how incredibly vast this censorship machine is. And, you know, now more is coming out about like, the, I mean, all the censorship they did regarding the COVID lab leak, and it just came out that the FBI knew for sure that the Hunter Biden laptop was real at the time that they pressured <laughs> uh, the companies to censor it, and that those specific agents did because their specific their argument was like, oh, the FBI is so compartmentalized. The people who said that probably weren't the ones that knew the laptop was real, and someone just testified that they in fact did. So it's all just an enormous mess that is looking ever worse for the government. But of course these like NPC people are so incredibly yeah. broken that nothing <laughs> will ever convince them of anything unless it's what they're told to believe. Yeah, seriously. I, I, I've, Oh my God. I had, I was listening to a, a something earlier and it's, it's a topic that, that we're actually going to go into a little bit. Um, and uh, it, I was listening to like, college university people and the way they talk is just mind-blowing um yeah so you say this we were uh, dude i love the way that you write this it's like thank you <laughs> um yeah we were told over and over again that the twitter files was a nothing burger um which you said you hated but uh it's it it does like yes that is what we were told and it was never true it's it dude it's it's so much emperor has no clothes i wish i had the statistics pulled up for the faith that people have in um, uh, in American institutions, like large d different ones, like government ones, as well as like, uh, you know, private institutions, because they, they have just gone down so, so much over time. And it's no wonder because you have corrupt companies talking to corrupt politicians and uh, people in intelligence communities. And it's, it's obvious and it's straightforward. And then they lie to our faces. Yeah. You know, Matt Taibbi just published something about this, I believe today. Um, regarding it was regarding the covid lab leak because somebody when the, fir the internet first came out it was kind of what he referred to as a mechanical problem for them in that it was just making people more aware of kind of like the warts that had always been on government and stuff like that but that you like didn't see so much because of a limited access to information and then now when we find out stuff that basically there was quite literally a vast conspiracy to, you know, like censor real information and do all of this, it, like just the institutional trust is so unlikely to ever recover, at least with these same institutions from, you know, the people that are yeah. willing to hear anything. Or significant reform. I mean, it, it's like, it's laughable at this point. Like anybody who, who there are, there are people who's in their lives because of the bubble that they live in. They live in very specific sheltered places they really believe in this stuff and they don't think that the loss in trust in institutions is that bad. And those people don't listen to this podcast because they're in their bubble. Um, oh, yeah. They don't listen to anything like this. So there, there are people like that, but like those people are going to be blindsided by this thing, even though it's so obvious. Um, Cause I mean, with some institutions, it's down to like 20%, 15%. It's like, it's insane. It's absolutely. Insane. Oh yeah. It's incredible that you can run a, society like that i mean in the long run you really can't yes right i mean it, it it comes to a head eventually there's there's lots of these things that um i think that you're like th things exist based on like essentially momentum and when you're existing based on momentum and like it's it's based on credibility that was gained in the past and a situation that is no longer you're you no longer have that credibility and it's vestigial essentially yes yeah all right let's go to this next 
let's go to this next one. Um, okay. A new war on drug terror on bombing Mexico because you can't stop your kid from doing drugs. Yeah. So I wanted, even though this is from March, I wanted to bring it up because now the yeah. Republican primary is in full swing and this is very nearly the, uh, I like, I'm pretty sure something along this line is going to end up on their platform because basically everyone agrees to it. Like just today for an yeah. article I'm working on, I was looking at Trump's um, policies page and he says that he's going to launch like a total blockade of like a total naval blockade of the cartels to prevent smuggling. And it's like, what does that even mean? That's a terrible. Right. Like, like you're going to stop all commerce with Mexico. You're going to like harass people, everyone on pleasure yachts. You see like what, what is your plan to do this? Cause you know, for, obviously drug smuggling is already illegal. There's already the coast guard all over looking to inter interdict them. So like, those guys do not around yeah well like, so what what does a block what does a total blockade mean does that mean that you're not going to let any ships leave mexico's coastal waters because that's an act of war by the way against mexico not against the cartels like yeah he, he didn't he didn't elaborate about what a total naval blockade means but not he's anything not gonna good. do it he's not gonna do it you know it's just like sorry if we have any trump's fans in the comments but like he he didn't build the wall um, he's not going to do it. It's a populist position. Well, but, you know, like, uh, apparently he had already wanted to, uh, bomb like fentanyl labs during his presidency. And he kind of didn't simply because he has a good relationship with Oberdor who like asked him not to or whatever. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I dude, sometimes it's like, I, I like, you know, that, that CNN town hall where Trump talked about what he did, like people in, it, it was my understanding, even though I'm pretty neutral on Trump, that Trump had been the one who had wanted to go to war with Iran. And it basically came out that that wasn't true, that his generals were trying to push him into Iran. So whenever I hear something like that with Trump, like with Trump, like wanting to do something crazier, it just it just seems to me like it was probably some general and someone framed it as Trump. Well, there was it. one like that with Pompeo, too, where I can't remember what it was, but, you know, he took he took credit for whatever aspect of what Trump was doing. But what he was taking credit for was the worst part of it. And it yeah, oh. it does. <laughs> I think it does also relate to this. Um, but I just don't remember what specifically it was. But, yeah, it's I mean, Trump is, of course, all over the place, but they uh you know, Vivek Ramaswamy is big on this one. This is his one really hawkish position. Uh, and then a lot of the other like mainstream Republicans are saying stuff like this. I will say I was watching those Tucker interviews from the Blaze Summit in Iowa, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, Asa Hutchinson, who was the undersecretary of defense um, or the undersecretary of Homeland Security under Bush, does want to declare the cartels a foreign terrorist organization foreign terrorist organizations, which is also a terrible idea for a variety of reasons. Mm. But he, he was acknowledging that you can't go bombing stuff in Mexico because that is literally an invasion and was also explaining that he worked extensively with Mexican president Vincent A. Fox uh, on these issues in the 2000s. And like, he actually understands that Mexico works with the U S on all of these things and you cannot make their government an enemy and have any sort yeah. of productive policy on it, you know? So I, I have to give him some credit for even like he's he's wrong on policy, but at least on actually understands the nature of the situation.
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just think it's an awful idea to be talking about doing anything like this. Like it, it's, a, it's a complete attack on Mexico's sovereignty. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's what Obrador said and explained extremely clearly. And he was already cooperating with the United States to an unprecedented degree on both yeah. border security and drug trafficking. And their crazy threats, you know, make them cooperate less. And I deal with this with idiots on the Internet all the time. Like I just yesterday, someone was like, oh, well, maybe if we cut off the $600 million that we give them every year, they'll listen. And it's like, OK, firstly, you jackass, that is one quarter of Mexico's uh, well, sorry, a quarter of a percent of Mexico's tax revenues. Secondly, I guarantee almost all of that money goes to stuff we demand they do anyway. You know, so that's like yeah. already aid for like policies the U.S. is demanding they do. You cannot you cannot force stuff out of them with a freaking quarter of a percent of their total revenue. That's ridiculous. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, there's an inflated sense of ego, I think, with a lot of people in the U.S. government with with how they can act. And it's also like it, it, it you know, you can blame Mexico all you want. But like, what about the drug companies? Like, it's it's not like these people started on fentanyl. Most what about of the, time. the damage to Mexico society that America's demand for drugs has done? Like, what exactly. about that? They could just yeah. as well attack our government for refusing to deal with the demand for fentanyl. Mm -hmm. It is the other side of that. It's like the the argument between transatlantic slavery, like when, you know, because there's empires in Africa. Oh, yeah. It's like the Malian slaves, Empire and stuff. Was, selling yeah, them and selling them, yeah. like there's three different there's three different parts and all of them are really bad. So, like, how are we going to decide which one is the one in charge or which one is the one? Like, is it the demand? Is it the supply? Like, is what happened? I, I I, I mean, I have to say, as I go into in this, the bigger issue is that we're living in a completely dystopian society where people feel the need to take a bunch of drugs and like drop out of it and become fentanyl zombies on the street. Exactly. And, like, unless we get to that, people are going to find a way to get and do drugs. So it's it's also <clears throat> um, uh, like, yes, ex exactly that. It's like. I think that blaming Mexico and talking about bombing Mexico is just insane. They're one of our biggest trade partners. What are you talking about? Like that, that's, yeah, it's, crazy it's crazy to me that bombing Mexico is a topic of conversation because like we were at war with Mexico, like what, 160, 70 years ago. But like my entire life, we've been like best friends, like them in Canada is just, we're chilling over here. Yeah. Okay? Well, like, and so also Mexico has a very different reputation in other countries and it does in the United yeah, States because this, this is part. the only country that their poor people come to. Right. And so like, yeah, they, they have a really good diplomatic reputation. If they complain about us bombing their country illegally to the United Nations, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it, I just wish they weren't doing it at all. But th the real problem is caused by pharmaceutical companies, I think, in a lot of senses, and by the US government that like, allows them to operate in the way that they do. And also the cultural underpinnings that create a situation where people are desperate enough, and they, they are that miserable that they turn to this type of thing. Like it's, it's, it's so many other things that like, this is a look inward situation. They're just blaming outward. But I'm surprised that so many, especially Vivek, because I really like Vivek. I'm surprised that that's his take on this. I'm I'm actually a little bit disappointed, frankly, but I'll have to look into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, he doesn't give that many details on it right on his website. But if you go okay. to both the section about um, dealing with China, because, you know, they link this to China, sending the components to make fentanyl there if you look both yeah, at that yeah. and his make america great again he has both like secure the border with drones and then he has 
a launch a war on the cartels thing under his dealing with China section. So he doesn't Jesus elaborate God. on either. Of them, okay. but there's a clip of him saying it in this article too. Okay. Okay. So um, we have like, okay. So a nation respected everywhere else. We briefly touched on that. Um, so Craig is asking in the comments and I'll, I'll let you answer this. And I think you, you did go up t- uh, into this a little bit before, but would ending the drug war solve this is what Craig asked. Oh, I mean, and so in the later in this, I do I do go into solutions, and like I am generally against the the drug war, but I'm also like really a realist, so I, I mean I try to look into things that could actually possibly be implemented under the framework that we live with and stuff like that. But uh, we, I mean, we have a problem where the cartels now have so much power that they would still like find another way to make money. But you know, like avocados. <clears throat> yeah, well, exactly. But um. No, I did see a thing about how they traffic those. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. Anyway, you know, when people, so when, with Oxycontin, they lied about how addictive it was, but in right. another yeah. way, it was really safe because it was pharmaceutical grade and it was of uniform purity and, you know, you knew exactly how much you were injecting. And so a big thing that's going on here is people are lying about their family members being drug addicts and being like, oh, he just thought it was a Percocet for a backache or, you know, stuff like that. Um when in reality, they, they just don't want to admit that their family member was a drug addict. So it's true that, I mean, especially at the point we are now, there would be a lot of benefits to actually having pharmaceutical grades, uh, opiates of uniform purity available, because these are primarily accidental overdoses because fentanyl is so small that it's difficult to cut properly, um, yeah, you know, especially wow. by like a random drug dealer. So, yeah, I mean legalizing opiates would massively lower the actual accidental overdose rate though it would cause uh any number of other social problems but you know everything's a trade-off yeah so i mean i i think that and this is not my opinion i think that the most extreme view of this would be one that's uh some movie oh it's it's kingsman 2 it's kingsman 2 the one where they go to freaking america you you seen that movie brad no so it it's like this action movie it's got uh taron egerton in i think his name is the uh, english guy from a few years ago and they like there's this drug that um that this like evil genius puts out and the drug infects people and then it kills them or it's a drug that they laced every drug in the world with And then, so anybody who even smoked weed or did Coke or anything, anything could be meth, could be whatever. Anybody that did anything like that, they get infected with this disease. It it has like a day gestation. And then a few days it kills you in, in, in various forms, it gets worse and worse. And like the idea behind this was that the people that are doing drugs are like bad and they should be gotten rid of. So I think that the more nefarious position like this crazy position that I wouldn't hold but that this immediately reminded me of is that you know certain people maybe don't want to have people that are fentanyl addicts who are on the street surviving and this is something I've heard from like like people that know EMTs and of course this is EMTs and and paramedics that are like in that are like in the shit every day, like dealing with traumatic situations. So I'm not going to pass judgment on them for saying this, although it does freak me out, but they're like, 
you know, when they're doing another overdose, I, I've heard from people that I know personally who have experienced other people being like, well, why don't we just let them die? Like, why oh, are we going to save this person? Yeah, I mean, it's no different than like the people in the trauma ERs being sick of, you know, patching up the same people for gunshot wounds all the time and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say a lot of a lot of the Republican rhetoric acts as if like their business model is poisoning people to death or something. And it's like, no, they obviously don't want their customers dying. Like, come right, on. Cause they, cause if they, if they're dead for the yeah, pharmaceutical companies, I, I they mean, won't like, buy more pharmaceuticals. There are limited instances of people like poisoning other people's uh, products, you know, to like cause people to come to their area or just, I mean, limited instances like that. But like, obviously the cartels, want these people to be addicted to drugs and to keep buying them not just drop dead all over the place yeah. especially because like it brings a lot of police attention when people die you know etc so i do i do think to an extent on its own this will find at least a little bit more of a balance uh because i'll probably get more like kind of responsible about um trying to make sure that everything's like cut properly etc but yeah yeah i definitely they definitely don't want these people dying it's just fentanyl's really cheap and it's very very potent by dose so it's extremely easy to cut it unevenly and then it's very cheap so people buy more than what you know like when oxycontin used to cost like a dollar a point you know so you'd be spending like 80 dollars on one of the largest pills and i'm pretty sure fentanyl's like five or ten dollars a pill for like the same strength so yeah, you have oh, people taking a whole lot more of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which is kind of good from a property crime perspective in that they can like get enough money begging and they're not having to like rob everyone. But you know, that's it. Once again, everything's a trade off. Dude, I love your, your crazy, like that is such a, like, I love that you said that, but that's such a crazy off the wall benefit of this is like, oh yeah, they can get super high on five bucks. So like, they're not going to be breaking into people's houses and stealing copper. That is a benefit. I mean, that is a thing that the anti-drug war people have always said though, is like, you know, you have to look at the external harms. And that that is another thing about opiate addicts is that they're extremely calm when they have drugs. So like people that do (laughs) meth are crazy, you know, they'll they'll just get high and act completely crazy crazy like people on opiates are for the most part completely harmless uh when they're on them to everyone but themselves you know i mean unless they're yeah. driving or whatever but yeah so yeah. it's it's always an issue is like the cost of drugs is a lot of what causes drives property crime God. i'm really glad i live in a uh opiate white area instead of a meth white area it seems a lot better for my health oh um, right yeah <laughs> okay um all right let's go on to the next article unless you have something else no that's fine Wait, so the fentanyl we got there. Oh, I didn't see that you had Zuby in here before. Yeah, Zuby follows me on Twitter. Kind of a big deal. Everybody, (laughs) yeah, he's my biggest fan. Yeah, I've I've been talking about this stuff for a while. Okay, so the BRICS, this next one. Okay, so BRICS, the BRICS go for gold. So this is BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And I think there might be some South Africa. South South Africa, yes. That's that's formatted wrong. It's a mistake. Right. I thought it was five countries. Forbes. They thought it was brick is plural, I guess. I guess so. That's a mistake regardless. Damn it, Nathan Lewis. Um, Okay. (laughs) After months of debate about various currency and commodity baskets, a Russia and China-led consortium has apparently settled on using gold as the basis of a planned new international currency system separate from the U.S. dollar and and euro. These types of things have been going on for a little while, and... Not many people, except people that are specifically interested in in it, are talking about them. But I mean, this has repercussions for 
Yeah, everything. Absolutely everything. Um, and I can see why they're not talking about it, but it's like, God. Okay. So this would be similar to the Bretton Woods meeting in 1944, where after the floating currency chaos of the Great Depression, a new gold-based international currency architecture was laid out. The centerpiece was the U.S. dollar, which in turn would be linked to gold at $35 an ounce. So in 1944, they established the gold standard with the U.S. dollar. And what that means is that the U.S. dollar became officially the world's reserve currency, even though functionally it already was in 1944. And it's backed by uh, gold. So the centerpiece, yeah. So this laid the foundation for two decades of peace, prosperity, and fixed exchange rates, which sadly came to an end. Obviously, this article is written in favor of the gold standard, which I am also in favor of which sadly came to an end when the U.S. dollar was floated from its golden anchor in 1971. Beautiful terminology, but one thing that's very important about 1971 that doesn't often get discussed is that what happened in 1971 was not that the U.S. decided to just drop the gold standard. The U.S. effectively defaulted on its debts backed in gold. They were incapable of repaying their debts. So in 1971, when... when the U.S. dollar defaulted. What they did was they ripped it from the gold standard. That was their response. And instead of going down, the market went up. And this is because they switched to a fiat currency, which allows central banks to just print money, devalue currency, to devalue your currency so that your buying power goes way down. And then they can hand out money with crony capitalism to their own um uh, to their clients as patrons, and they uh, and and this increases the value of the economy. So we went into this fiat currency. What it also does is increase destabilization. Um, so this happened in 1971. Since then, we've been on a fiat currency system, and right now it is. You've seen the inflation over the last and the money printing over the last few years, and and how that has gone, um, and it hasn't gone well. So I want to point out a couple of things here in this part. So in 2009, Libya's Muammar Gaddafi proposed a pan-African currency, the gold dinar, echoing the gold dinar coins of the Arab caliphates that once ruled North Africa. There's a lot of countries in the Middle East and North Africa that call their currency dinar. That's not weird. There's like seven um, or some form of it and dirham as well. Unrest in Libya in 2011 put an end to such ambitions. Number one, he got killed. <laughs> unrest in Libya. Unrest yeah. in Libya. <laughs> like this Forbes article is in favor of the gold standard, but they're like, like, if you don't know, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do. But if you don't, <laughs> Libya's Muammar Gaddafi proposed a gold dinar, a gold backed currency in 2009. And then in 2011, he was stabbed in literally in his asshole and killed by U.S. backed militants. And then. Hillary Clinton laughed about it on TV. Yeah. So overall, so, I just wanted to say I'm a, I'm a skeptic of this theory of U.S. foreign policy that they go after all of the places that don't have um, that aren't involved in the world financial system. I think that it's mixing up the cause with effect. I think it's that all the countries targeted by the U.S. then try to get out of the global financial system because they recognize their ability to do things like what they've done to Russia. Um, so I would just say that about um, the, the timing of him pr uh, promoting that proposing that and then getting overthrown and murdered. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's uh, he, he we probably already were involved in Libya in 2009, to your point. And it's just it always they just coincide with each other. Right. It's like 
the the central bank was established the u.s the second or third whatever it was uh was established in 1913 and uh after 1913 the war starts in 1914 there's always these weird things where there's significant events and then and then right after them it's i don't know it, it like i'm not saying that definitely it, they are they're super related i think they're related i don't know if they're directly related but i, I think they're definitely related um so also in 2009, China's central bank, this the head of it, wrote, an international reserve currency should first be anchored to a stable benchmark and issued according to a clear set of rules. So this guy, this Chinese dude, way back in 2009, had said that they wanted a gold-backed currency. Um, yeah. And then Mao Zedong apparently ended hyperinflation in China by fixing the yuan to gold. I mean, it works. Fixing the value of your currency to gold works. It's just... it can reduce the money supply. I actually like the basket of commodities idea. You know, you link it to like eight different things because the price of all of them fluctuates. So then you just have a set amount of say platinum and lumber and oil and whatever that you can buy with it, probably throwing, you know, like grain, possibly a manufactured good. I think that's a great idea, but I mean, I'm not an economist. I, it's, look, it sounds like a good idea, but at the same time, like doing anything like that in economics is, especially in complex systems when it works with other things, I like that idea of the the whole basket of, of commodities but there's just something there that no one's gonna see or it's gonna be a black swan event and it's going to ruin it and it, because like that's never been tried before. yeah i was gonna say yeah, no one's tried it but i mean i mean all of those things are already traded so like this mechanism's already in place to sell your shares in gold and buy shares of wheat futures or cattle futures or whatever so i don't know i think it's, it, it's i think it's anytime, viable anytime you get into these like these um complex schemes right the the complex schemes look it's like it's eight like a bunch of different commodities like that is there's risk in that and anytime you get into derivatives at all derivatives is the bane of this the opposite of derivative is gold i mean gold has been used for tens of thousands of years just gold it's one thing it doesn't go away it doesn't go bad it's stable and that's and it's it's stable and it's sustainable um Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in the comments, Craig, yes, the dollar is in trouble. Um, yeah. Who talking? Yes, that's Brad. And Daniel is telling him it's Brad. We aren't allowed to see Brad. So yeah, they're, they're still talking about that. That's okay. Um, okay. So the, and then here's what, okay. So what happens here? Bricks is working on creating this. This is a threat to the U.S. as having the reserve currency status, which is very important to our economy. Um, and the isolation of Russia from the entirety of the Western financial system, including the U.S. and EU banks and the SWIFT system for international bank payments. So this was done recently because of the war in Ukraine. So when the war in Ukraine happens, the West decides, and this is something I, I, I that relates to something I had mentioned earlier, which is that... The U.S. is um, the U.S. and other in the West acts in this way that they still have the relative power that they had years ago and that they can act in this way that they they have in the past. And they like ruin countries economically just by pushing them out. But what countries are seeing now and after experiencing this and wanting to protect against this, these other countries, they don't want to like they're pushed out from the Western system, but there's enough countries that are pushed out from the Western uh, system that they just have now gotten to the point where through growth and through enough of them, 
through growth of their economies, especially China, they've gotten to the point where they're capable of doing it themselves. And they're capable of creating something just fine and they don't need the U.S. And when the U.S. just does these economic sanctions, they push these countries towards each other. Um, and they're acting like they have the relative power that they had 50 years ago and they just don't. Um, and can I tell you a story from ancient Rome about yes. a really famous episode? Please tell me a story. Okay, so in a round, I believe, that, I believe it was in the second century BC. It's in the f- books 41 to 45 of Livy. Um, the, the Seleucid um, king, which was the heir to the Persian Empire, though at that point it was much reduced and mostly controlled, but would be around Syria now, um, had invaded Egypt during a dispute between the Ptolemies. They were in a sort of civil war. And he was on track to conquer all of Egypt, which was the greatest uh, prize in the ancient world. However, this was about at the height of Republican Roman power. And so this great king and emperor basically uh, what was in Egypt and the head of the Roman delegation, I don't remember his name right now, came to him and he delivered him a tablet from the Roman Senate that told him that he had to evacuate Egypt immediately or he would be at war with the Roman Senate and people. And so he looked at this ambassador, remember this is a king speaking to an ambassador of the, from the Roman Senate, and he said, let me go talk to my advisors and we're going to decide what decision we're going to make. And the ambassador drew a circle around him in the sand. And he said, if you leave this circle without giving us a response, you will be at war with the Roman people. And he responded, I shall do as the Senate decrees. And that is because Rome had the absolute power and he recognized it even as he was about to conquer Egypt. The United States thinks it is still in this position in the world. However, it is not. Yes. Absolutely. And, and it, and it thinks it is because it used to be, and it has that attitude built into its institutions. So even though, even if, even if individuals might recognize it, although not in the story that you just told, even though individuals might recognize it, they still will as an organization functionally work in this way because people who adhere to that belief will, they'll, they'll have the power in, in that situation overall. Um, God, yeah. So, Bricks, look, I mean, the economy is not in a good spot. It's just not. Okay. No. So now we're going to talk about CMT. The our title of this article is CMT pulls Jason Aldean video. What to know about try that in a small town controversy. So, um, uh, Craig, no, not Craig. Craig, uh, who shared this with me, Craig, Craig, you, you also wanted to see it, but someone else shared it. It was, uh, he's, he's not here cause he doesn't listen to the live show, but he's going to listen to this back. And I'm sorry that I I'm forgetting who it was. Um, so, so this thing you wait, you love Aldine for this. Doug Dimidank. I'm just going to join the CCP and learn Mandarin. I got to stop reading the comments, man. You guys are YouTube comments. Um, okay. <laughs> Country music television is no longer airing Jason Aldean's music video. Try that in a small town, which sparked criticism after its release Friday. So I listened to the song. Look, I, I don't like this pop country. I, uh, I like my other stuff. So like, I thought the song like could have been written by Bo Burnham. Um, but that's not really the point. Not exactly what we're talking about. Um, what we're talking about is that Oh, Mr. Blast Voice. That's why I don't remember because it's a freaking username. I don't have his Isn't actual Bo name. Isn't Bo Burnham the guy that deserted in Afghanistan? <laughs> Duke. 
<laughs> That's Bowie Bergal. Oh, Bo Bergal. Oh I don't God. I don't follow music. I don't know who Bo Burnham is. No, Bo Burnham's a um he's a comedy singer. He he oh, wrote I this see. song. He wrote this song called Pandering that is about um uh, it, it's about like pop country artists that are like live rich oh, lives and then pander to middle America. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's funny about you saying that is, you know, Morgan who works the Babylon Bee uh, was giving this guy a bunch of shit on Twitter. Cause he's from a Mason, Georgia, which is like 170,000 people. Oh, Jason. He, that yeah. that's where Jason Aldean was from. Yeah. He's never lived in a small town. <laughs> 170,000 people. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. So look, that that is the first part about it is that I think this song is dumb. I love Tyler Childers. I love Culture Wall. I think the song is dumb, but I think this song has a right to exist. And I think it's, and I really do not respect this guy, Jason Aldean for apologizing. And I think he apologized because he has no freaking balls, but there's a number of other things here. Okay. Like this song, like, I, look, I listened to the lyrics, like here, here's some of them here. So Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. They're talking about like the BLM protests. Stomp on the flag and light it up. And the 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 music video was very aggressive. There was like, dude, it was like there was BLM protests. They they have a burning American flag in the music video. It's like it it was rage porn a little bit. I get it. It was rage porn, but I think they just took the pandering a little too far, and they went like, I I don't even think that Jason Aldean believes this stuff. One hundred seventy thousand people, man, that's crazy. He called that a small town too. Well, he's not really claiming. I don't. I know he didn't call Mason a small town. That just is where he's actually from. Yeah, Um, and they they called this song pro lynching. I don't. Oh, so I saw a thing about that. The reason for that is the courthouse in Tennessee that it's pictured from is known for a lynching having taken place there in like 1930, which like it's not your job to research every single thing that's happened at a place when you film in public. Come on, man. And, and look, if I was the thing is, lynchings were really not all that common. I think like thirty five hundred black men or black people or like three thousand black people and like fifteen hundred white people, some of them supporting black rights and some of them just being Catholic were killed over the course um, of like 400 years. Yeah, I mean, there were over a specific period, I think of like 50 years. Mm. Um, and like, but I I have some pro- like, look, it's, it's because it's. This courthouse is also just a local courthouse. I'm sure there's other significance to this. There's plenty of other significance to this courthouse. Like he, he probably didn't even know that that lynching had happened. No, there. no and it he doesn't didn't like tell anyone to look into the last right. hundred years of the history of this yeah, public location. Did anything bad ever happen here? Like it's and then I also reject the idea. Um, okay, I, I think I also really reject the idea that this was somehow racist because it's like, dude, there's plenty of black people in small towns. I don't think, I, I really don't think Jason Aldean is racist. I, I like, I, I think, okay, let me actually read a little bit more of these lyrics. Um, yeah, you think you're tough. We'll try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road around here. We take care of our own. Like it's all like it's pandering lyrics. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't try that in a small town. Oh, it's totally like something you'd see on South Park. You're right about it sounding like it should be a parody. Yes. I mean, it's 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 just very over the top, very on the nose, no subtlety. I mean, I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm not offended because I think it's racist. I'm offended because I feel like my intelligence is being disrespected when I listen to this song. But he still has the right to do this. This is America, and he shouldn't have apologized. Um, I'm just going to go to the comments for a section. Um, I grew up in a small Midwestern town. Lyrics are quite accurate. Yeah. So Piggy did grow up in a small Midwestern town outside of Indianapolis. Um, 
Sorry. Freaking. I mean, I live in my hometown of a thousand people and we still had BLM idiots here though. They weren't like rioting or anything. I'm, I'm sure you did. I grew up in, I grew up in what I would call like suburban, but I grew, my town only had 18,000 people in it. I like, I could go higher than 18,000 and call that a small town, but like 170,000 ain't it. That's not even I a town. I don't think my city of 1,000 people is that small. I mean, I, that's small though. That's small. That's a small town. <laughs> Sorry, Higgy. Sorry. I'll, I'll cut it out when I put it on, when I put it on the, uh, the podcast. Um, now, okay. So there's a couple other points. Um, I feel like small isn't the same as it meant in 1806. Um, well, yeah. Craig, 350 people. That is very few people. That's crazy. Oh, that's definitely small. And then, yes, Doug Dimadank, you are a city slicker. I know that. You're from big-ass Texas city. Um, okay. So, Higgy, Higgy got to a point that I have written in my notes, which is relative to music that is produced by the hip-hop community, this song is not racist. It's also not promoting violence. They're saying that this song is, like, promoting violence. And I think that that's crazy. Um, and, but it really, it shows a lot of things. I mean, they got Shale Crow out here coming out and sticking up for the wokes. You got Tennessee rep, of course, like everybody has to come out, condemn Jason Aldean's heinous song calling for racist violence. He didn't do that. It like some of the, some of the rap music now, like especially certain genres, absolutely insanely promotion of violence, or even celebration like of real ago. murders. Yeah. Yeah, it, it honestly a lot of it wasn't as bad back then. As well, it you know, is so today. it's actually funny. I believe it was in Baltimore. They had some issue about whether or not they can use rap lyrics in court because people kept rapping about actual murders they committed. So then people were getting convicted because they seriously talked about crimes they committed in lyrics. So they kept being submitted as evidence. It's ridiculous. Yes, exactly. And and it's also a thing like um, a lot of cartel members would tattoo it on themselves, and they would use those like. It's it's ridiculous. And obviously they should be able to use those. If people are rapping about their murders and they're being like, I, I got into this rabbit hole a little while ago. And I, I think it's insane that these people are coming out against this. I mean, this was tame. Like I listened to the song. I get what they're saying. It's just that apply that logic to a lot of other things, but they don't apply it in situations when it's about stuff like this. Like it's, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more in a second. Actually, I, I'm going to get into it right now. Um, like It's just... In this situation, it's like the BLM protests happened and the, there were riots and they like burned down cities. People got killed. People, many people were wounded. Like they're allowed to disparage white people constantly. Like I'm not like a, a white, I'm not a white supremacist. Definitely. I'm not like even a white nationalist or like a, a somebody who believes in like a serious white identity. But like when I'm when I see people do that and, and say these things like outwardly and then like you're not allowed to not be OK with that. And then there's this situation, this song that I think is bad, but it just like you have to like it's a stretch to call it direct. It's not direct. And then it's a problem. It's a big problem for them. So the media, the news and Hollywood supports the politics of the left. Uh, they may they make excuses for um, mass violence and even killing in, in the um, in the uh, in, in the riots. They call them the protests. I mean, the, the thing with Ashley Babbitt being killed in the Capitol, like, like I'm not going to defend her going into the going into the. Um, the Capitol building, but at the same time, she went into the Capitol building 
and like, but she was unarmed. I, I think if that was a different situation, it would have gone a different way. Um, the other thing, oh, I'm sorry, Brad, if, if you need to go, you can obviously go whenever. Uh, no, it's fine. I can finish okay. this with you. Cool. So, and I wanted to point out this. So this is AFP. This is uh, the French government's uh, news organization. And this article quotes from U.S. Democrats falsely characterized as calls for violence. So in this situation, the, these are prominent Democrats. You have uh, Kamala Harris. Protesters should not <laughs> let up, and they're not going to let up, and they should not. So Harris made the comments in June 18th, 2020 interview with television host Colbert. BLM demonstrations. Look, they say BLM demonstrations. They don't say riots. People were dying. Um, for equal justice meant in terms of affecting, like they, they view things by the most, um, the most hospitable, the most benevolent they possibly can. They're not going to stop. This is a movement. They're not going to stop before election day in November. And they're not going to stop after election day. They're not going to let up and they should not. And we should not. So like, look, you're in a situation where certain elements of this, of this thing, of this demonstration, as you call it, are burning down cities, they're hurting people, they're they're destroying small businesses, and you're downplaying that, and you're calling for it not to stop, and it shouldn't stop even after election day. And then the commentary from these people is the interview included no discussion of violence. Harris spoke of the multiracial makeup of the protesters and their commonality of spirit. There was no discussion of violence in Jason Aldean's song either. There wasn't a discussion of violence. It was the nuance given to, to Jason Aldean's song was in a negative perspective. In this perspective, they took something which literally does talk about don't let up on what you're doing and what you're doing literally is violence. And then they're saying, oh, since there's no discussion of violence, if they use the same, this same idea to view the, uh, to view the Jason Aldean song, then they would say, no, they didn't talk about violence because they didn't. And Nancy Pelosi, I just don't know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. And maybe there will be. I mean, this is this is a th these are political leaders too, the vice president. And then Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. I mean, these are like politicians. They're not just some random, like bad country singer. Sorry if you guys like Jason Aldean. I just think he sucks. And then Maxine Waters, if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, really prominent Democrat. In a department store, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them. They're telling people, she's telling people to harass people as a crowd and tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Well, so, and they meanwhile tried to say Trump posting like a meme that showed CNN in a wrestling ring was like a call for violence against the media. It's just vast hypocrisy. It's it's insane. It's it's absolutely insane. And I like, I whatever. And then, I mean, this one, I don't know who this woman is. This is the only one I don't know. But she says there needs to be unrest in the streets. That's that's violence. You're calling for violence. Oh, that's a congressperson. I don't remember where she's from. Yeah, now. she's not as prominent as the other three, but like in it's still. Um, and then they go down here. This is the last thing. And I'll let you say whatever you want on this. Um, but they go down here and then in the same article, they start talking about Donald Trump. And even though they're directly <laughs> quoting his tweets. But Trump's speech also included the following remarks. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Um, like all these things. But like, dude, <laughs> um, they cited fight like hell. Like it's obviously a metaphor, dude. Like it's not. He's clearly not. I mean, but if you use the logic that he is promoting violence, then so are all these people is the point. And it just seems to me like in these situations where you have 
like the news media, Hollywood, all of them are on the side of all of the the left wing political of, of positions and they excuse violence committed by the left. And I'm not I wouldn't even call myself necessarily on the right. Largely, I'm definitely socially on the right, but I'm I'm not like all on the right. Um, but it, it's just when you have people living in a country where none of the institutions represent them anymore and there's a large portion of them, like I don't feel represented by Hollywood. I don't feel represented by the news media. I don't feel represented by any of these things. The only things I can feel represented by as like a white guy in America and like you can call it white fragility, call it whatever you want, but like country music and hockey. And that's kind of all we got. So just let us have this. <laughs> man. Just let us have this. I don't even like Jason Aldean, but I want you to let us have this. Um. Yeah, yeah I, I would feel. just say quickly think? that uh, some no, take maybe time, a couple of years ago, I there was an article. I believe it was from um, the Substack called "The Appeasal" by NS Lyons that was titled um, "It's Not Hypocrisy, You're Just Powerless," <clears throat> and it was explaining essentially how these people that we're dealing with have an what you would call an ideological belief that there are different social classes in our society that should have different rules like you would see in any, you know, feudal type system throughout history. So they're not actually, they're not actually being hypocritical because they genuinely believe they have different rules than us. Um, you know, they're not just saying one thing and doing another. And I think yeah. it's definitely true when you look at just, just everything that they do all the time, like, they obviously think that, I mean, they're a priori good and thus it follows that anything that they do is justified. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I, it's, I really isn't hypocrisy though in the, in the traditional sense. Right. Because they, they truly <clears throat> view themselves as, as greater. And I, I think you're yeah. totally right. I think you nailed it there. Um, and, and that's what it is. It's like, you know, they're the, they're the right ones. And, and this is something that I'm going to be getting into in my very late, very, I apologize to everybody on my, my late again, anthropology of religion series, which should be starting tomorrow, maybe the day after I, it has to be quality enough. If it's not good enough, if I'm not prepared enough to do it, I just, I'm not going to do it. It's going to be late. I'm sorry, but it's uh, when it comes out, it will be at the right quality and it will be the next few days. Uh, the first episode. So, yeah, that that's what it is. Thank you for that, Brad. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, okay. This thing that happened, what happened here? Why is this not working? Hate speech, hate speech posted on economics website is traced to leading universities research finds. So I was following this earlier. I thought this was going to be a whole massive thing. It, it ended up being a nothing burger as of now using your term that you even yourself said you hated. Um, it wasn't my term. It's everyone else's term. I no, would never no. <laughs> use it in any other context. Right. No, I, I'm going to use it forever now because I, I like it. Um, so there's this website, Economic Job Market Rumors, and it's like uh, Economic Job Market Rumors. This is it's like the 4chan of economists. I went to this website. It was crazy. I, I recommend you look into it if you enjoy doing that. I'm, I'm somebody I like to go on like 4chan and I used to go on incel websites and just see what they were talking about, but I stopped being able to find those, which hmm. is fine because those guys are, I mean, the, the websites I would see, the stuff that they would post was just vile. And like, I'm somebody who would go to 4chan to just see what was going on. It's worse, like worse than 4chan. Um, but regardless, I went to this place and like, 
individuals at top tier colleges and universities, including Harvard, Stanford, and University of Chicago. So these are economic professionals who do not feel uh, clearly they're they're going out and they're doing this on this website because they don't feel like they can have these opinions out in the open anywhere else. And that's my primary takeaway from this is that these people, because they don't feel like in their regular world, they can be honest. They're honest on the internet. And what you have in this case is, uh, Users who post on EJMR are predominantly economists, including those working in the upper echelons of academia, government, and the private sector, the paper concluded. It was written by Florian Ederer, a management professor at Boston University, Paul Goldsmith Pinkham, a finance professor at the Yale School of Management, and Kyle Jensen, an associate dean at Yale. So this, this study, which looks into the IP addresses of everybody who goes on this website, they found that like they, they they found the IP addresses and apparently they might be able to find the actual identities of the individuals involved in this, which would be just a massive hit to like free speech in general. And honestly, the people on this website are saying some vile racist shit. Like there's some racist stuff on there, some clearly misogynistic stuff on there. But at the same time, universities have universities and news media have like supported the invasion of Iraq. They've, they, they've supported like all these awful other terrible things. And like, so I'm not willing to say that they're doing anything that's worse than what anyone else is doing. Um, and, and like these people who work in the upper echelons of, of, uh, of media or, or of universities rather. And, you know, these people, they feel that they can't say their lived truth. It's their truth. It's their lived experience. And I, I think that that's wrong. And I think they're, they, that they're treating these people wrong. Um, so what happens now, and oh, here's the other thing that's interesting about this study is that it is from, it did not have, it was found to be exempt from the internal review board. And you know what an internal review board is, right? I, Sorry, I know I the general phrase premise, like yeah. Yes, yeah, so, but I, I'm, I'm explaining anyway. I shouldn't phrase things like that. And also I'm going to explain it for mm -hmm. the benefit of anybody anyway. So the internal review board is in universities in order to find out the, uh, to make sure that papers are ethically, are, are ethically safe. So these are, so that any paper is done in an ethical manner. And the reason it was found to be not in line with the, well, it was found to be, well, they made it exempt from the internal review board, which is very rare. And this is because obviously it would be against the internal review board, but Something you said earlier, Brad, that I, I, I really liked was that they consider themselves exempt from these rules. And it's clear to me that because these people see this, they see what people are saying on here and they find some racist comments and they decide, OK, the rules don't have to apply to us in this situation because we're doing the right thing. And it's it's when you do that and you stop listening to these to these rules that you've put in place that are, are supposed to be you know, constant for a good reason, because once you start eroding them, then that means that they, they are rules that can be eroded. And, and that means the loss of this sort of structure that you have. And in this case, it means the loss of free speech. It means the loss of, uh, it, the loss of acceptable, um, discourse at universities. And, and ultimately I think it also results in universities losing even more of their credibility as they already have, but it opens up for people like you and me to have shows and writing like ours because people don't trust 
the institutions anymore. And I certainly think that's at least a positive. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is that they ban so much reasonable discourse that there are probably a lot of these people that if they were allowed to politely discuss reasonable things under their own name, wouldn't be spending their time being racists on anonymous websites. So, I mean, that's a, a big way to look at this. Yeah. Yep. Seriously. And uh, that, that's and, th and that's my takeaway as, as well. It's like it's this is happening because they don't feel like they can share their things out in the open. And, you know, I, what newspaper is it that has the thing democracy dies in darkness? That's the Washington Post. Yeah, the Washington Post. OK, I wish it was the New York Times because I prefer the Washington Post, although I don't like it that much. Oh, obviously. I actually hate the Washington Post way more than the New York Times. Really? OK, well, yes, the Washington Post was my favorite mainstream publication until Jeff Bezos bought it and turned it into absolute garbage. Oh, I but forgot. See, right. Well, yeah. See, the thing is, well, the New York Times might be more kind of propagandistic in terms of how it frames issues. The Washington Post is way worse for just completely false stories. Like if you look at something like uh like especially in the Trump era and things related to Russiagate, basically any major news story that sources initially from the Washington Post will turn out to be false, like about domestic politics, especially. So like they're a leading purveyor of misinformation, but also the fact that I used to like that newspaper makes me hate how they've fallen all the more. Yeah, that sucks, man. That sucks. And I, I used to like the New York Times more. I used to really like NPR and they've gotten crappy. I still I still use them sometimes, but like I've been... I, I prefer AP quite a lot. I prefer AP and Al Jazeera. Um, but there's a few others. But forgot about Jeff Bezos. I used to say that all the time, too. But yeah, actually, look at some of these comments. Here. And he, it's funny. He actually sold it now or is in the process of selling it oh. to buy the Washington Commanders. And I'm sure it's a total coincidence that he's buying the football team, that it's the easiest to buy off government agents with like box seats and shit like that. You know, that kind of that sort of in-kind gift oh is, is illegal and regulated, specifically sports games. But you know that there's ways to get around that. So, yeah, now he's now he's going to own the Washington, D.C. football team because that's apparently better for buying influence than owning the Washington, D.C. paper. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah, you because they know society? that do whatever they want yeah man i mean it's 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 crony capitalism at its best i shouldn't even call it capitalism because it's not when i live in washington so he like owns my state as well <laughs> dude that sucks wait wash oh washington you live in washington state, state? yeah oh, okay okay we'll have to talk about that after i didn't realize you lived there um yeah that sucks that guy sucks um i think i can say that since we're on we're on we're live on youtube and twitter right now which is uh, honestly that, you know, it's not um, it's Elon Musk's and freaking alphabets. Um, OK, so, yeah, the things they were posting on here, though, I'm just going to read these because I think they're kind of funny. Things were way better when women were focused on rearing children, and feeding their husbands, said one post highlighted by the research. I actually agree with him. Things were way better when women are focused on child rearing and feeding their husbands. I'm not saying that. But see, now that's a major thing about economics, though, is you're talking is it's an interesting thing for an economist to say, because he's saying that you need some people in the society that are less specialized. So I think that's a really, uh, really something economists should be discussing, because they're the ones that said that all of society is going to do better if you specialize women in a certain type of labor and it's divided yeah. instead of having them doing more utilitarian sort of uh, multiple jobs at home see this is this is all great stuff to discuss <laughs> yeah absolutely um but i i mean it would be like 
like these are the conversations that need to honestly be have. I know it sounds kind of funny to certain people, like like to 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 have like a hot take like this, but at the same time, it's like it's can we talk about how our society is culturally kind of falling apart? Like I, I, it, it really is like, we should be able to talk about that and talk about the possible things. And I'm not saying that women need to get in the kitchen, but I'm saying that maybe promoting economic gain above all else was not the best recipe for a healthy society. Um, this one, I, I mean, what am I supposed to say about this? But the next quote, hey, just for says, all you know, that guy really hates Serbia and that's an abbreviation for the Balkans. Yeah, it could be. But for for the people just listening, um, what I have highlighted here is the biggest enemy of America are colon blacks, but it's just BLKS. They didn't put a A or a C in there for some reason. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just, I'm not going to defend that because that's not defendable, but But it's like, we all, I don't know how old you are, but like I'm 35 and I, you know, have had the internet since like 1995 or something like Mm -hmm. the internet's always been full of anonymous racist garbage. Like, why are they acting like this is some sort of new social problem? Well, so 10% of that they traced this, this website is really like they, tr- they confirmed that it was all like economists mostly. And it was also economists at like Ivy league schools. That's the only reason why this is significant. If this were happening on poll, it wouldn't, I wouldn't even be talking about it. But, yeah, this, but I mean, this like was, economists yeah. also tend to have some problems understanding the more social aspects of society. And they tend mm-hmm. to be kind of, I don't know, have various social problems, et cetera. Like I, I wouldn't find it strange that some of them would, uh, take a dim view of a group of people that overall has less economic prosperity and presumably right. lower productivity. And, you know, all, I mean, once mm-hmm. again, I'm, I, I do think that uh, there are obvious reasons why an economics professor should face some sort of career consequences for saying something like that publicly, because that's ridiculous. And, you know, yeah. you have like students that race in your class and stuff like that. But at the same time, it, it also is part of what they study is the ways in which different demographic groups contribute economically to a country. So, I mean, these are still all things that to an extent merit discussion. Yeah. Yeah, they are. It's obviously you need to have more tact than the biggest enemies of America are blacks. That's but like, or just like, I mean, this one, the, the, the one about the women, you know, it's like, it's a, it's, it's a crude take, but like, there's a, there's at least a take there. The, the, the other one is just, it's a lot, although I, I, I'm not surprised. Well, it so reminds I actually me of- want to say something about this woman one. So Pat Buchanan yeah. said in one of his books, he actually kind of uh, promoted this, may not promote it, but discussed this policy for a long time, that they should make an exception to the laws about equal pay to allow for like men who are supporting a family to get paid more by like a company that they work for than, you know, they would pay a single person. And all the free market type people were like, oh, well, that's stupid. No one would ever do that because they're going to hire the cheapest employee and, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well, firstly, if no one would do that anyway, then there's no harm in allowing someone to do that if they chose to do it, even though it's uneconomical. But like, there's a lot of reasons why a worker with a full-time wife and like support staff would potentially be a more productive employee. Like he's not going to be missing work because his kid's sick. He's probably not going to be coming yeah. in hungover that much because he has like a wife he's going home to. He's probably not going to be taking long lunches because she's, she's going to pack lunches for him. She's probably going to make him take care of his health. Like there's a variety of reasons why a man with a wife staying at home is going to be a more productive and more motivated worker. I mean, I'm not I'm like I'm not an economist. But yeah, like, there's it, something it, to the premise that a man supporting a family would on 
average have higher productivity than either a two someone with a two um, income household or a single man with no family. Like there, there's an econ- there's an, an economic basis to that idea. Yeah, it, it's almost like the foundation of a culture is the family unit and the family <laughs> unit has been under attack. Right. Well, for exactly. Decades, right. But basically, like yeah, he, he has yeah. support staff that you're not paying for essentially if he's like has a stay at home wife, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's rough. And one, one of the things I've talked about a lot, uh, I, I harp on this all the time is that like in our modern society, we are, we have a, a one track. There's like a, a one track for, um, for, uh, what people value and what, uh, like what is valued and it, it is largely economic. So like in the past and in traditional societies, there are like, it's not like one type of thing is, is, uh, made as preferential over another, like somebody making more money doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. Or in most societies, there is no money. Like women's work of like in traditional societies, child rearing, whatever it is in that particular society, like that isn't considered better or worse than, than what the men are doing. And this isn't always the case, but it's a lot more common and it's a lot more healthy for a society. Uh, and, and this is even true of like people with what we would call mental health issues today. Like schizophrenic people would be would be given a role in societies. There would be roles for people that had those types of symptoms that would be in line with the way that they interact with the world. But today it's not, you're not allowed to have like parallel beliefs and, and parallel, um, uh, parallel jobs for people to do that can be considered like equal to other jobs. Oh, that's because so, it's more efficient for everything to be uniform. It's they've turned us all into economic units and uniformity yeah. increases efficiency. You make everyone interchangeable parts and it all mm-hmm. works great besides that we're all miserable. Right, exactly. Because it's like the, people are being pushed to something that's not within their nature. It's like the 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 values of our society work for 10 to 15%. And that's like largely, not not exclusively, but mostly it is it is tall white men with the that are there are new neurotypical born in an upper middle class area at least and are and don't have any sort of disabilities like it's a very I, small I disagree. percentage i think that our society is working the best for neurotic women who are able to attain a higher <laughs> education and get useless management type jobs it's definitely helping those people out as well i don't think those people are happy i think those people are making a lot of money well, they'll never be happy yeah but they're right, like exactly. they're meeting whatever goals society theoretically has for them when they have right. you know one kid at age forty. Exactly, and and but I think that that's like that's not the path that I think is right for most people. No, and like, it's not. Look, I, I'm I'm most of those things that I just described. I'm not all of them, but I'm most of those things that I just described. And even for me, I don't feel like the rules in society are are great for me. Um, mostly because I like ex- like like the way that I think mostly, but. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, you don't, you don't have to put certain work as preference over others. Do you have anything else to say on this one? No. Okay. So two more, this guy, man, what we know about Travis King, the U S soldier who crossed into North Korea. Um, this is kind of a fun one. Um, you know what? No, I'm going to come back to this one. We're going to do that one last. We're going to briefly talk about this. And really the only reason I want to talk about this Iraq one 
Iraq expels Sweden ambassador, embassy stormed over Quran burning. So protesters angered by the burning of copies in Quran, of the Quran in Sweden set fire to the Swedish embassy. So the Swedes and the Finns who shared an embassy compound have fled Iraq um, because there was an Iraqi dissenter who was living in, in refuge in Sweden, who was burning Qurans, I guess, and they were mad about it. And all these Muslim countries are pissed off. I mean, when I say Muslim countries, I mean just the Middle Eastern ones. Indonesia is not pissed off. Is this not strangely reminiscent of the so-called spontaneous demonstration in Benghazi? I was not thinking anything like that about it, um, but maybe a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I just that's just what I thought of, because that's Hmm. like exactly what they said about those four people being killed, even though it was like a a bullshit story or whatever. Like, oh, no, it was just like a spontaneous uh, demonstration because of some, you know, YouTube video or whatever. Like, (laughs) uh, I don't know. It's kind of similar. I don't know. But I I mean, I'm taking I've taken this at face value. So I'll I'll have to react to it based on that because I have up until now. But basically, my point and look, I, I love I love Muslims. I lived in Indonesia for two years when I was younger. I grew up around Muslims. I don't, I don't have a problem. Oh yeah. I like Muslims too. The the thing is that it's, it's like their beliefs, their, their beliefs in these countries, like they're asking for this guy to be extradited. No one's going to extradite a dude who's practicing freedom of speech and that you're going to kill for it, for, for this thing from a liberal country. It's like modern Western liberalism is completely incompatible with the Muslim world. It just is. And not admitting that is crazy, but it's, it, I mean, it's liberalism itself that allows for, for people. And when I say liberalism, I'm talking about traditional liberalism. I'm not attacking liberals of today. As I often do, I'm attacking the concept of, of the origin of liberalism that paved the way for this, um, for this type of thing. But like, um, Turkey's mad about it. Like Turkey, the most liberal of the countries over here, often considered part of Europe, part of NATO. Yeah, but I mean, they're already dealing with all this stuff with Sweden and they were already in a dispute about this. Oh my God, they were in a dispute with Sweden. Yeah, so they were, this was one of the things they wanted Sweden to do was not issue these things to let people burn the Quran. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's like, I wish that now Iran is claiming that this person's a Mossad agent. A Mossad agent? Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. Or something. I saw something about. It. I think it was around. Someone's claiming he's a Mossad agent. I believe it. I believe it. I'm sure. Um, I mean, that is that's a throwout though. That's a throwout. Sometimes, whenever something like this happens, they're like Mossad agent. They're they're probably right some or most of the time, but like maybe maybe not. Um, yeah, but Iraq, Turkey, UAE, Jordan, Morocco issued protests. The governments of them, and Iraq wants the man's extradition. That's fucking. That's crazy. They know they're not going to get that. Um, and then this guy talking about how it's all about love and faith, um, which is just not true. I'm not, look, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the Quran is not all about love and faith. Okay. The founder of the Islamic religion was a military leader himself. And then there were caliphates for, they were Islamic empires for 1200 years. So don't tell me it's about love and faith. Um, no, it's about me, submission. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Submission. And then in the event that you that you do submit to be a part of it, then it's about love and faith and brotherhood and everything. But until then, and as long as you're not a woman, it's okay. So, you know, I actually want to say something really interesting about this though. Yeah. So I reviewed this book recently called um, Broken Camelbells, Somalia, Age of Terrorism, 2006 through 2022, by this guy, Abukar Arman. And he was talking a lot about how um, kind of all of, 
like we were talking about loss loss of faith faith in institutions he was saying that since all of somalia is broken you know that islam is the only thread that's left in the country holding them together mm -hmm. uh but he was he was saying something that i found interesting about how you know muslims look at all of these parts of the quran in terms of how they're like living in the world around them but they don't think about the years that uh that Muhammad and his followers spent in Medina as a minority and that um, Muslims could like really learn a lot from that, especially like in their interactions when they live in Western societies or just dealing with the rest of the world around them because like there was a time before they came back and as conquerors and whatnot, you know, that right. they were like a, a persecuted minority group or at least, I don't know, tolerated minority group. I, don't know, I just yeah. thought it was an interesting point. They, they were definitely persecuted at least a yeah. little bit more so when he started trying to like challenge the power a lot, yeah, which exactly. makes sense. But like, you know, yeah. if you act like a dissident, you get treated like a dissident in most societies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, same thing happened to Jesus. You can't, yeah. you, you can't blame the Jews and the Romans for, or the Judeans rather is more precise. The Judeans and the Romans for getting pissed off at Jesus. Cause he was a dissident. Just like you can't get mad at the, um, the Bedouin tribes for getting mad at, uh, Muhammad because he was a dissident. Um, that's kind of the point, right? I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks for that. Is that, um, okay. Last one. We good. Yeah. Okay. All right. And there is, so actually the last thing on that, there is something about like it, those, those like times in a religion's history where they, they act as, as a certain thing, as opposed to another, those like leave traces and they affect the religion and how it develops. So when you have a situation where where Islam did exist as a persecuted minority, albeit for a short time, I mean, that that really affected the way that the religion was structured initially, just like any other religion is affected by that. And that's why what you would when you find with different countries, there are there are different cultures that have different influences on the religion and on the culture. And that's how you end up with something where like. Um, like Burmese Buddhism is like very different from Tibetan or Vietnamese Buddhism. And it's mixed with uh, Burmese like ancient culture. And it's, it's like much more violent than other forms of, um, of Buddhism, like Tibetan and Vietnamese, which are not entirely nonviolent in all cases either. But Burmese Buddhism is, is, is a little, it's very different. Um, but yeah, what we know about Travis King, the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea. So I love this story because this guy, this man right here, Travis King, this is my hero. This is private E1 Travis King. A U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea on Tuesday did so willfully and without authorization, according to U.S. and international officials. He's now believed to be in custody of North Korean armed forces. Um, okay, so the man whom a U.S. Army spokesperson identified as Travis King was a private second class, so he had been busted down in rank, I believe, to the lowest rank, as far as I know, in the U.S. Army. And he had just been released. So he was a Cav Scout, which is funny if you're familiar with the military because they are the butt of many jokes. Um, I was in the Army, so I don't know. But I've heard from my Army friends that they're made fun of a lot. So it's funny that he's a Cav Scout. Um, he attacked a South Korean national made a big international incident. I mean, this guy, this guy embarrassed the army. He embarrassed the country. He embarrassed himself. He embarrassed his unit. Like, I, look, I don't give a shit. I personally don't care, but I'm explaining this situation. Like, look, this guy was in South Korea, U.S. soldier, attacked a South Korean national, fined $4,000 and went to jail. And he was, and he fought with the cops. And um, 
he was then released to U.S. officials. And then what happens after this foreign government got you, he was then going to be taken to um, he was going to be taken back home. So he was in custody. He was going to be taken back to America, probably to serve a court martial. Um, and he was being escorted to the airport where he was expected to board a plane for Fort Bliss, Texas, to face military disciplinary action. So officials escorted him through airport security, but King somehow managed to dis- ditch the escort. So he got away from the guys from the, the guys escorting him. Those guys are in deep shit. I guarantee it. And he made his way out of the terminal and back to the DMZ between North and South Korea. He joined a tour group at a border town in South Korea towards North Korea. And then one member of the tour group described the incident on a now deleted Facebook post saying that King laughs loudly. That's a typo saying the King instead of, instead of just King. So he's the King. That's cool. He is the King. This kid, this kid's a legend. This is amazing. It's, you know, he defected to North Korea is what happened, but he's a legend for this. He laughed loudly and then ran between two buildings and eventually into North Korea. And I, he, so he knew, he knew that he was going to be in so much trouble. He knew that he embarrassed his country. His unit was probably treating him like crap. Everybody was probably super pissed at him. He made an idiot out of himself. So he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to defect to North Korea. And what I love about this is it's such an insane leap of faith. Like he know he thinks he probably thought his life in America was over because he was going to get kicked out of the army. It was like a totally dishonorable thing. It was bad. He was being treated like crap. He had just got out of two months in a South Korean prison, which is even worse than America. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to go to North Korea. They'll like me there. That is my chance for a second chance. And most guys might think about doing something like this. But this guy, he 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 ran away from his military escort where he was going to go back to probably spend more time in jail because he was going to get arrested. He was probably going to be put in a military prison. And he just decided to join North Korea. And now we don't even know where he is. The North Koreans haven't said shit. The North Koreans are keeping shut. I have a couple of comments about this. The first is that it's definitely a drastically irrational reaction to the amount of trouble that he was in. But you know what's really funny about this is, you know, there was that guy that defected during the Korean War in the 50s that then lived in North. Well, but this one of them lived in North Korea for like another 50, 60 years. And he was in all of their propaganda films as the American villain because he was like the one like white person that had to play this role. Since this dude's black, he's probably going to be in a bunch of propaganda films about how America's racist and like unfair to minorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and that's something that Korea did during like that's something that the Vietnamese did during v- the Vietnam War. It's something they did in Korea against black troops. It's it's always been like that. And like, I, I mean, I don't know. I Yes. I and I mean, yeah, the I, communists I, played that card long term. But like this one specific guy was like a, basically a famous actor in North Korea right. for like 50 years. Right. I, I and I remember that. And he was married to like a Korean actress and everything. Yeah, yeah I, I remember hearing about that. And, you know, maybe that's what this guy thinks. Maybe he knows about that guy. Maybe he's thinking like, look, I'm never going to be respected. He's in probably America. just an idiot. He's probably just an idiot. I'm probably thinking way too deep into this and thinking that this guy took this massive leap of faith to like live a new life. But like, really, he's just an idiot, probably, because. Look, if you can defect to like, and maybe if you were in more trouble, like Julian Assange or whatever, like he lives in Russia. I could live with that. I mean, it, I could live with it more before the war, but like you can live with living in Russia and especially oh, with Moscow is a beautiful city. 
Right. And the uh, when the other option is spending the rest of your life in prison and maybe being killed by the U.S. government, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll live in Russia. But North Korea, dude? Yeah. North Korea? Eesh. I don't really take anything from there to be accurate just because it's so hard to right. get information. I mean, I'm sure it sucks, but it was really just funny. There was some, like, gay communist guy that was there on a tour and, you know, trying to show people, but it was really, like, on YouTube. And I, I just thought this was funny. He went to, uh, like, a water park that they had built there and was, like, showing, like, all these people being happy. And I was like, you know, this is propaganda, right? Like, those are those are all actors at the water park. And I was like, okay, why would they hire actors instead of just giving away water park <laughs> tickets to people? Like, I'm not saying it's not yeah. propaganda. But, like, yeah. if you're going to tell people, like, hey, take a day off. Here's a free ticket to a water park. Like, you don't you don't hire an actor to, like, hey, yeah. pretend that you're a water park patron. Like, what is you that? You already have the expenses. Yeah, like, like exactly. No, they're just people the that they sent to a water park. Yeah. No, I mean, like, there, there's no way that's propaganda, right? Wait, it, wait, Russia or North Korea? No, it was in North Korea. So this guy's in North Korea, and he's, like, at a water park and, like, showing how happy oh. everyone is. There's some gay communist from America was there on a tour. But I was just laughing at the fact that the person said, you know, those are all actors. And it's like, no, they didn't hire actors to pretend yeah. to be water park patrons. They just gave people tickets to a water park and said, like, right. hey, take the day off work, have a good time. Yeah, right. And that's all you would have to do. Yeah, well, especially in a society like that, where like, you don't want to look unappreciative of, uh, you know, of a gift the government's given you. And, you know, like if someone can't even like act like they're having a good time on a free water park day, like, you know, that person's a problem in your society. Right. right? Like, and they probably did tell them, hey, you have to act like you're having a good time. But that's easy. I I think it's implicit in North Korea. Right. right, Exactly. Because if not, it's like an embarrassment um, for them. And honestly, this Travis King dude. He embarrassed, he embarrassed America hardcore. He embarrassed a lot of people, but I think it's hilarious. It's definitely um, funny. Yeah. Um, you got anything else you want to say on this or on anything else? Uh, no, not particularly. Okay. If anyone else has a question, you can ask that. I'm just going to read through the last comments. You guys were talking about heights and um, national divorce. Yeah, I, I meant to address that earlier. I, I don't... I, I am hoping... I think Higgy is actually repeating my idea, which is uh, which is fine. But I I think that Higgy was talking about mine, which is the expansion of federalism, and uh, in the sense that state governments, sh- the the good result would be state governments increasing their power in response to um, to the federal government. And I hope that that's how it's going to go. But that doesn't seem to be the direction that it's going in right now. Um, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't have any thoughts on Trump's third indictment. Five seven, I guess, is a good height. Um, uh, what does the five seven height comment have to do with? Well, that's just Higgy was talking about being five seven. He's married to an oh. Asian woman, so it's fine. oh, I see. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Taxes and inflation cause the need for two family incomes. Yes. So kids are put in daycare instead of being right. By being well, now daycare is so damn yeah. expensive that it takes like 80% of your, of a person's income. So yeah, like, it's crazy. uh, it's crazy. you can just scrimp a bit and stay home. And yeah, that's what a lot of people yeah. are doing now. Yeah. Especially with a lot of jobs working from home. Um, yeah. Okay. I I'm, I'm all set. That was good. Uh, thanks Brad. Again, you can find him. His, he's going to be linked in the description. He's linked in the description of this video. It's also going to be linked in the episode, which hopefully will come out tomorrow. Um, thanks for coming, everybody, and enjoy the rest of your night. Uh, is there anything right. else? Wait, is there anything else you wanted to uh, you wanted to plug? 
Uh, no, I was just going to say thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or you can follow me on Substack. Um, like I said, I, I write generally one article a week that is usually uh, what people would describe as thorough, that being a euphemism for long. Yeah, very um, long. But I, uh, I cover really quality topics. So, uh, yeah, definitely you should consider both following me on Twitter and subscribing. And, yeah, thank you for having me on. That's all for yeah. me. Anytime, man. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for coming, Craig and Higgy and everybody.